Welcome to Sunday School. Go with me to the book of Micah as we continue our series through this book. We are in chapter 2, and once again we'll begin by reading verses 1 through 11. Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. And they covet fields and take them by violence and houses and take them away. So they oppress a man and his house, even a man and his heritage. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, behold, against this family do I devise an evil from which ye shall not remove your necks. Neither shall ye go haughtily for this time as evil. In that day shall one take up a parable against you and lament with a doleful lamentation and say, we be utterly spoiled. He hath changed the portion of my people. How hath he removed it from me? Turning away, he hath divided our fields. Therefore thou shalt have none that shall cast a cord by lot in the congregation of the Lord. Prophesy ye not, say they to them that prophesy. They shall not prophesy to them that they shall not take shame. And actually, I think we'll stop there. I think that's as far as we may get. In verse 1, we saw the premeditation of Israel's iniquity. They devised iniquity upon their bed. And at first light, they practiced their plan of iniquity to take houses and fields by force through defraud. And they could do that because the Bible says it was in the power of their hand to do it. Then we considered verse 2. And I should say our challenge from verse 1 was, what are you doing with the power God has given into your hand? But then we considered verse 2 where we saw their iniquity was taking the fields which did not belong to them. They coveted, they oppressed, which means they defrauded. Uh, They were defrauding the poor out of their heritage, which was given by God, that which God had originally given in distributing the land. And, And the challenge for us was to be content in this life. Just be content. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Last week, we saw God devised an evil against them for the evil they committed against their family. Their national family is what God's referring to there. Verse 3 begins with, therefore. Um, So you have to find out why it's therefore. Therefore, because of verses 1 and 2, God is going to execute judgment against them. Their necks will be brought into a yoke of judgment. And... uh, The enemy will take them captive, for it is a time of evil. And the emphasis was, we reap what we sow. The Bible makes this absolutely clear. And it's throughout the entire Word of God. If we sow to the flesh, we'll reap corruption. If we sow to the Spirit, we'll reap blessings. Remember that God has designed life to be self-correcting. There are consequences built into our choices. This would be an elementary example, but one we can probably all identify with. If we consume a bad diet loaded with processed foods, sugary sweetened drinks, fried greasy foods, pretty much everything I like, ice cream, then we can expect to be far more likely to gain weight. There's a built-in consequence. God doesn't come along and zap us with all the complications that come along with an unhealthy diet. But there are built-in consequences of consuming that kind of... Is everybody with me? 
And so you can apply that to any realm of life, uh, any lifestyle, any habit, any sin. There's built-in consequences. Life's full of these situations that are designed to be self-correcting. We learn what pleases God and what displeases God through the law of the harvest. And can I just encourage you, it wouldn't hurt you to observe what is coming up in other people's fields. That way you don't have to learn by planting the seed yourself, right? You can learn from other people's mistakes. And I did that with my siblings. And they probably did that with me as well. But we can learn from other people's fields. Last week, I think I only read a couple passages from Deuteronomy chapter 28 where it starts with the, this is how you're blessed. And then in verse 15, it says, this is how you're cursed. And it gives a long list of both. And I think that's all I read. But let me give you some verses I didn't read last week to better emphasize this point of reaping what we sow and the fact that consequences are built in if there's no repentance. Proverbs 5, verses 22 and 23 say, His own iniquities shall take the wicked himself, and he shall be holden with the cords of his sins. When we reap to the flesh and we, and we have a, a, a life of sin, we are then holden by those cords. It takes the wicked. In Isaiah 3, well, I should read, I should read to you Proverbs 5.23 since I mentioned it. He shall die without instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he shall go astray. If, if you never turn to God, you're just always going astray. Amen? Isaiah 3, 9 through 11 says, The show of their countenance doth witness against them, and they declare their sin as Sodom. They hide it not. Woe unto their soul, for they have rewarded evil unto themselves. Our, our, our verse here says, God has devised an evil because of their evil. And there in Isaiah it says, they have rewarded an evil unto themselves. But listen to what it says next. Say ye to the righteous that it shall be well with him, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe unto the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. Isaiah 50 and verse 1 says, Thus saith the Lord, Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away? Of which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities ye sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. And this should remove all doubt. Jeremiah 2.19 Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Hosea 14.1 O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. And somehow I got these out of order. Hosea 13.9 says, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself but in me is thine help. And finally, Zechariah chapter 7, verses 11 through 13. But they refused to hearken and pulled away the shoulder, stopped their ears that they should not hear. Yea, they made their hearts an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts has sent in His Spirit by the former prophets. Therefore came a great wrath from the Lord of hosts. Therefore it came to pass that as He cried, they would not hear. So they, so they cried, and I would not hear saith the Lord of hosts. They reaped what they sowed. They, they didn't want to hear. And God said, I'm not going to hear you. Now, 
God is not hiding from us the way in which we can be blessed. Amen. God doesn't make that a mystery. God makes it absolutely clear how we can be blessed in this life. Did you know that God is not up there playing mental checkers with us? Amen. Um, He doesn't make being blessed or cursed a great mystery. He's not sitting up there and looking over at Michael the archangel and and, and nudging Mike and saying, Hey, Mike, watch this. This guy thinks he's going to reap a blessing, but I'm going to give him a curse. That's not what God does. Amen. God is good to us. He wants us to live blessed lives. God loves us, and He's not out to get us. Aren't you glad? Remember when Abraham learned that the Lord was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18. Abraham begins a conversation with the Lord there, and it it goes like this. It begins in Genesis 18, verses 23 through 25. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham's here having this conversation with God, and he says, look, I know it's not your nature to destroy the righteous with the wicked. Thank God. God said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the place for their sakes. And remember, Abraham, he keeps having this conversation with God. And it goes from 55 to 50 to 45 to 35 to 25. Anyway, it keeps working down. I don't know why he stopped at 10, but he did. I know there's theories out there about Lot's family and all that. But he stopped at 10. And every time that Abraham asked the question, God said, I, 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 won't, I will not destroy it. I won't do it. I will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. That's not God's way. And I want to assure you this morning, the judge of the earth always does right. He's always just. Now, there may be times that it doesn't seem fair. But He always does right. It, it, it may not seem fair to us, but He is just. So back to our text in Micah. God is justified in devising an evil against them for their evil. Look at verse 4, please. In that day shall one take up a parable against you and lament with a doleful lamentation and say, We be utterly spoiled. He hath changed the portion of my people. How hath he removed it from me? Turning away, he hath divided our fields. In that day, in the day of evil that's coming, when the Assyrians come upon you and lead you away captive, in that day they shall take up a parable against you. To take up a parable against somebody is a bad thing, typically. It's used as some sort of a mocking way to make fun of a person and or a group of people. It's a proverb. It's a byword. It's a taunt. It's an insult. It's a jeer. It's making fun of the calamities that have come upon a people. It would be a scornful way of telling how the Assyrians conquered the house of Israel. And then rubbing that in Israel's face to take up a parable. An example might be Psalm 137. It really depends on how one reads it, I suppose. 
But in Psalm 137, it's when the enemy, I believe, is speaking a parable against the house of Judah when they're being carried away captive into Babylon. If you remember there, uh, well, let me just read to you Psalm 137, verses 1 through 3. It says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof, for they, for there, they that carried us away captive required of us a song, and they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Just rubbing it in, I think. Sing us one of the songs. Where's your God? Who's your protector now? I believe they may have requested that to shame them. If you can picture that scene in your mind, it does seem as though it would be a time of mocking them. They had just hanged their harps upon the willow trees. They're about to cross over the river to go into captivity, already having been conquered. And then the enemy, at that point, when they sit down by the river, says, play us one of the songs of Zion. Well, how can I play for it? I just hung my harp in the willow tree. And so it's just a way of rubbing it in. There are many examples of Proverbs and parables spoken against people in the Bible. I'll give you two more examples from Isaiah 14. One is against Babylon, the other is against Lucifer. In Isaiah 14, verses 4-6, through six, it says that thou shalt take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, How hath the oppressor ceased? The golden city ceased. The Lord hath broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers. He who smote the people in wrath and with a continual stroke. He that ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and none hindereth. And, and you really need to keep reading there. But the point is, they're, they're now taking a parable up against Babylon. And they're saying, this, this who... Or, and I think that's the context. I don't think it's a series. But either case, they're taking up a parable against an enemy. Those who once persecuted us, how hath the oppressor ceased? And it's this parable in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the highest of the clouds. I will be like the most high, yet thou shalt be brought down to hell. To the sides of the pit. And again, you got to keep reading, but you see the emphasis there. This parable against Lucifer. You wanted to be way up there, and now you're way down here. Boy, we give the enemy way too much credit, don't we? Upon thy belly thou shalt go, and dust thou shalt eat. Micah 2.4 goes on to say that the parable which would be taken up against them would be a lament with a doleful lamentation. If you look this up in the Hebrew, it's, it's very interesting. It's a lot of different ways of saying the word lament. And most agree it's another way of saying that this would be a lament, this would be to lament a lamentation of lamentations. That's how bad. This is a lamentation of lamentations. And it's to emphasize the severity of what's taking place. The opposite would be the opening of the Song of Solomon, which says, a song of songs. It's a joyful thing. It's a song of songs. Jesus is the King of kings. And this is going to be a lamentation of lamentations. That's how severe and grievous the lamentation is going to be. It's going to be a bitter time of mourning. It'll be a time of continuous wailing. 
In Amos chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it says, Hear ye this word which I take up against you, even a lamentation, O house of Israel. The virgin of Israel is fallen, she shall no more rise. She is forsaken upon her land, there is none to raise her up. That's pretty bad. You're forsaken to the point where you're not rising back up. If the house of Israel refused to repent, which we know they did later on, then she would be fallen to rise no more. All of her earthly help would be forsaken. There would be nothing to help her earthly speaking. In Micah 2.4, they would lament, saying, We be utterly spoiled. He hath changed the portion of my people. How hath he removed it from me? Turning away, he hath divided our fields. And then it continues into verse 5. Therefore thou shalt have none that shall cast a cord by lot in the congregation of the Lord. The enemy would take what they wanted. And when we go through this verse by verse, you get a better sense of, of what's taking place. They, what, what the people of Israel wanted, they would no longer be able to keep. And the enemy would come in, and the land that they wanted is now going to be laid waste. The loved ones would be taken captive. Cities would be plundered. Other cities would be inhabited by the enemy. And through this, we see the evil being executed for their evil. The house of Israel had oppressed the poor by taking their lands. And now, uh, or, or in those who were doing the oppressing, they became rich by oppressing the poor. They became rich by taking what did not belong to them. And God is going to allow the enemy to come in and get the land and leave them with nothing. Do you see what's going on here? And so what they did, God's going to do to them. And as I mentioned earlier, I referenced Deuteronomy 28 last week where it clearly lays out obedience brings blessing, disobedience brings a curse. This is what it says in Deuteronomy 28. Verses 28 and 29. If, if they were to disobey, it says, The Lord shall smite thee with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart, and thou shalt grope at the noonday as the blind gropeth in darkness, and thou shalt not prosper in thy ways. And thou shalt be only oppressed and spoiled evermore. The same thing they did. God says, that's what's going to happen to you. And no man shall save thee. Micah 2.4 goes on to say, He hath changed the portion of my people. The portion was that which they had received uh, as their inheritance that would now belong to the enemy. They were so desirous to get a bigger portion of the land for themselves. And now God's going to take it all away. How hath He removed it from me? I believe this refers to the force and the speed in which the enemy came through the land and took away what they thought secured their futures. And that's why they wanted to get more and more land. They wanted to be secure in their futures. And yet all of that's going to be taken away very quickly. Uh, Matthew Henry wrote this, What is unjustly got by us will not long continue with us. The righteous God will remove it. The last phrase there in verse 4 reads, Turning away, He hath divided our fields. It's never good when God turns away. <laughs> Amen. Um, the only time I can find in the Bible where God turning away was a blessing to us is when He had to turn His back on Christ on the cross. Amen. Um, why hast thou forsaken me, Jesus said, so that you and I wouldn't have to be forsaken. Hallelujah. But it's never good when God re re turns away. And... Um, 
It always begins, though, with us turning away from Him. Don't forget that. You say, well, God, I don't sense God in my life anymore. It starts with you turning away from God. Now, if I understand this phrase, turning away, in the Hebrew, it's the opposite of returning. That may seem obvious to some, but for those of you who were here for our Sunday night series a while back on end times, you may recall Daniel 9.25 speaks of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem. Remember that word restore there? It means to return to the land. It's a restoration back to the land, not a restoration of buildings and, and things like that. But it's a, it's a people returning out of captivity there. And so this is the same Hebrew word, but it says you're turning away. And I believe what God is saying here is, is they're being turned out of their land. They're being taken into captivity. God is turning them away. That's, that's what I believe this, this to mean. In verse 5, we read, Therefore, because of their iniquity, and because God will bring the enemy in, and because they will change Israel's portion and remove their portion, because the enemy will be in possession of the land, Israel will have none that shall cast a cord by lot in the congregation of the Lord. At the end of verse 4, it says, Turning away, he hath divided our fields. And the allusion there is back to the days of Joshua when the, when the land was divided by Lot. And that's, that's what it gets into here at the beginning of verse 5. And, and so God's taking them back to that time. And He says, you want to redivide the land? I'll divide it for you. I'll give it to the enemy. Verse 5, thou shalt have none that shall cast a cord by Lot in the congregation of the Lord. No longer is anybody going to be able to cast a lot and divide the land because you're not even going to be in the land. So it's a very harsh punishment, and God here is, is really emphasizing all that's happening to you is what you already have done to others. I think there where it says there will be none to cast lot, there's a much deeper sense. And again, you really have to dig into this, but I believe it's more than just being temporarily turned away. It, it was... Judah was blessed in that they were turned away, but they came back after 70 years. The house of Israel was turned away, and they were sowed among the nations, and they lost their identity. They lost their kingdom identity, and they never returned, it, returned to it. And so there's a deeper meaning here, and I want you to get this, that when it says there will be none to cast a cord by lot, it really means ever. There, there will be none. It's not going to happen. And that's been true. They have lost their identity. The sad part is, they were being removed from the land of the congregation of the Lord. And this is so important for us. Because they shall have none. You're not going to be in the land. None's going to be able to cast a lot. But then it says, in the land of the congregation of the Lord. To be in the land of the congregation of the Lord is, is a way of saying this is where God has chosen to place His, His house, if you will. His temple. It, it was in the land. Now granted, the house of Israel had decided to worship the two golden calves in, in Dan and Bethel to not have to go to Jerusalem and worship the true God. 
But now the Bible says you'll have none in the land of the congregation of the Lord. Your children won't even have opportunity to go and worship God. You see how sad this is? They wouldn't even have opportunity. They wouldn't have access any longer to the land. Their grandchildren would grow up never really knowing what all of that meant. They they would never really know. They, They would never see it. The children might have seen it at least, and they might have been taught some things. But as they go into captivity, and as they lose their identity, and as they're being assimilated among the nations, the children can't go to the congregation of the Lord. The grandchildren really don't know much about it. And I can tell you, by that fourth generation, they are so assimilated among the heathen that they don't even know about it. How seriously every generation needs to take their time upon this earth. Every generation... Every generation's decisions will impact the next generation. And it will have a ripple effect down to three and four generations. Every generation. What a humbling thought. What are you leaving for the next generation? What have you you left your children? For some of you, what are you leaving your grandchildren? Do they know about the land of the congregation of the Lord? Because if you get taken captive, your children might know a little something. Once, once the first generation, and those of us who are, are, are bringing up children will consider us a first generation because we're all kind of a first generation in that sense. What are we leaving for the next generation? If we get taken captive, what hope do they have? Well, they have some hope, but it's just look around you today. Now, what happens if that second generation goes into captivity? And then the third generation is living in captivity, and now they're so assimilated, they've never even had a Bible in their house. Isn't that right? And we are now in a day in America where there are families who have never even seen an opened Word of God. They've never read it. Their parents have never taught it to them. They've never even gone into a church. What are we leaving for the next generation? And listen, it used to be we could knock on a door and we could witness to people and we could at least start talking about the gospel message with them having some kind of understanding. But it's gotten to the place now where they don't even know who Adam and Eve is. How are you going to talk about a sin nature and they don't even know what happened? And we now live in a day where we have to go back to in the beginning was God. And so it's just a different time. And it's because there has been generations now of captivity. Let's see if I can get verse 6 in here. Prophesy ye not, say they to them that prophesy. They shall not prophesy to them. They shall not take shame. So this was a common problem in the Bible and it's still a common problem today. Many people don't like hearing the truth of God's Word from God's man and God's people. Can I get on a soapbox for just a little bit? (laughs) It interests me how many people think that you all are a bunch of brainwashed robots. That I have perfected some kind of mind control over you 
And that's why you are here. Many people view Christianity today as you just being a bunch of weak-minded people. It interests me because in reality, it's the complete opposite. And I know that especially now from this side of the house. It's completely opposite. Now, there have been cults who have brainwashed people in the name of Christianity. Jim Jones comes to mind in the late 70s and people like that. But on the whole, groups that are clearly not fringe groups, that's the farthest thing from the truth. Uh, In fact, the proof of this is all the different denominations out there. That proves we are not a bunch of brainwashed, controlled robots. There are dozens of options to choose from. And I mean from those who say they follow the Bible. I'm not even talking about false religions. Why do you think there's so many different stripes and brands of Christianity today? It's because people don't like following. They don't like following the truth of God's Word. They find something wrong with it, so they break out and start a new system which will suit them best even though it violates Scripture. I did a simple internet search, so this has to be true. But I searched for how many Baptist denominations are in America. And, and I think there's more than what they gave me a number for. I, I, I saw one some time ago that was in the 60s, but this one said 31 different Baptist denominations and groups. At least 31 calling themselves Baptists. That's literally a Baskin-Robbins of choices. 31 flavors of Baptist churches. We are chocolate and peanut butter. My favorite. Now, which ones of those are right? Curtis Hudson has a famous sermon that he used to preach. Things that are different are not the same. Which ones are right? And in most towns of any size, you'll find Baptists, Lutherans, Methodists, Reformed, Presbyterians, Seventh-day Adventists, Pentecostals, Assemblies of God, Apostolic, Church of God, Church of Christ, Church of God in Christ. And you add to that the growing list of self-proclaimed non-denominational churches. Um, I'm not saying I'm against that, but... To give you an idea of what that would be, it'd be like the Calvary Church movement, things like that. And then you add to that all the different groups within the groups. Like I said, there's at least 31 different Baptist flavors. How many different other flavors are out there amongst the other groups? Some are more liberal, some are more conservative. And I mean to tell you, it's a mess out there. It really is. We haven't even mentioned the Catholic Church, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Unitarians... All of us can't be right. There's a difference somewhere. And if this was all just a bunch of brainwashing, then we never would have departed from the first century church in the book of Acts. But because we're not brainwashed, now we have all these different flavors of churches and doctrines that are all over the land. Listen, if I had people brainwashed, we'd be overflowing. We've seen a lot of people come and go. 
If I was able to brainwash them in here, we would have done busted out the wall somewhere. I don't like to talk about it. It depresses me. But the number is... Anyway, uh, there's, there's no brainwashing on this side, I can tell you that. You might have me brainwashed for all I know. But uh, <laughs> I've never been able to force somebody to come into church, and I've never been able to force them to stay. People tend to drift away from churches like ours because they didn't like something they saw or heard, even though the issue might be biblical. And, I, and right now, I'm talking about people who claim to be independent Baptists. But you see, it upset their personal view. And sometimes it's because we prideful independent Baptists tend to be very obstinate on where we stand and what we believe, and no one's going to change that, not even the Bible. I've met independent Baptists like that. Oh, it's right there. No, 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 that's not, that's not what it means. Oh, many churches result as a split off of another church. When I was in North Dakota, there were four independent Baptist churches in our town. All of them were splits off the previous. On the other hand, there are those who end up in a church like ours, but they never really adopted the biblical Baptist distinctives. And in time, they rebel against what they don't want to hear, even though it's from the Bible, And so they find somewhere else that will suit their fancies. Where can I go where I can hear what I want to hear? And see what I want to see. And since our flesh rebels against what we don't want to hear, people just kind of start floating around and they end up being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. I once received a letter stating, I'm going to attend somewhere else. Now, they weren't leaving over doctrine that I'm aware of but some silly thing that's not even worth getting into. But they ended up leaving our church to go to a church that teaches a false doctrine on salvation. Now, I'm not talking about leaving over a doctrine on whether we turn the microphones up high enough or low enough. Salvation! This is a fundamental of the faith. And the Bible is absolutely clear on how we get saved. It's through the blood of Christ. Plus nothing, minus nothing. It's Jesus Christ and that's it. And so... Uh, ended up leaving for a false doctrine church. I had, I had earlier written a letter explaining why we stand where we stand on certain issues that they had questions about. Not, and again, not really doctrinal things. But I gave book, chapter, verse why I could not in good conscience support certain ministries that are around town. But the message obviously was not very well received. Even though it was completely biblical with all the references to back it up. Why? Why does that happen? Why is it we can give sound biblical counsel and it be so blatantly rejected? It's because lost people and immature believers like to hear what they want to hear. Prophesy not unto us. Say they that prophesy to them. You see what I'm saying? 2 Timothy verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Prophecy prophecy not. 
Don't tell me what the Word of God says. I don't want to know what God's Word said because I've really already made my mind up about it. Come on now, is everybody with me? I'm, I'm talking about the problem the house of Israel had as well here. Don't prophesy to me. Don't, don't give me God's Word. What's really confusing and it's nearly impossible to refute is when people say this. Well, God directed me over there. Really? God directed you to false doctrine. That's what they say. God led you to leave a doctrinally sound church for one that teaches a false gospel. No. No. God never directs us away from true Bible doctrine into false doctrine. It never happens. And yet we see people who drift in and out and they'll end up over here in, in this charismatic group or in, or in this church that's compromised on the Bible or this church that has let the world in. And they say, no, no, no. God directed me over there. No, He didn't. God never leads us into false doctrine. According to the Bible, the Spirit of God directs us into all truth. Let me be absolutely clear here. I'm talking about the fundamentals of the faith. If you want to leave because you disagree with me on what happened to the tribe of Dan, God bless you. But if you're leaving because we teach the blood of Christ, we use a King James Bible. We try to exercise some amount of holiness when it comes to our music program. And we try to do these things that honor and please God. And that's why you're leaving. God didn't lead you away from that. It is biblically impossible for God to lead us into false salvation gospel. But you see, that's the problem today. People are casting aside their Bibles in favor of what they want to hear and what they think ought to be true about God. Well, I think this ought to be true about God. Did you see those comments by Aaron Rodgers in the news lately? For any sports fans in here? Just got a corrupted view of God. Why would anybody want to serve a God who has condemned His creation to hell? Well, first of all, you've got it all wrong. God didn't condemn anybody to hell except for Lucifer and his followers. The Bible makes it very clear that the hell is created, hell is created for the devil and his followers. And if you don't follow God, guess which camp you're in? Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting there aren't legitimate reasons to ever leave a church. There are sometimes. I had to do it while we lived in North Dakota. But I wasn't led by God to go to a church teaching a different doctrine of what the Bible says. The church we were in, were, they were moving away from the King James and they were changing the, the music. Just some things that were wacky. The pastor's wife wore these really tight skirts right here. But then what they did was they turned the piano around facing the congregation, a keyboard, and she sat right there. And of course, the skirt comes up and you could see everything. That's wrong. That's wrong. And I watched as my friend, Mike Overton, who we've had here before, 
go up there and try to put a modesty curtain on that like we have in front of the piano. And the pastor chewed him out. Music started to change. Bible started to change. We were supporting missionaries that didn't hold to the Baptist distinctives. And I finally went to the pastor and I said, Pastor, what's going on? This is not what it says in your, your resume that you sent. And I wasn't there when they voted him in. I had come a couple weeks later. I got chewed out. Long story short, I had to go to a vote. We had to leave. I'm not saying there's not times that we have to leave a church, okay? If this church starts to take a different direction, you ought to go somewhere else that's taking the right direction. You say, well, what if there's not another place that has the right direction? Well, when I was here the first time, I made this crazy statement. Be careful what you say, amen. From the pulpit, I remember preaching, and I said, if I ever go to a place where there is no good church, I'll start one. God sent me to North Dakota, and there was no good church after all this fell through. And I had to do what I thought I would never have to do. And we started one. And God blessed. God blessed. Anyway, prophecy ye not, say they to them that prophecy. Don't tell me what God said, but give me what will prosper me. That's why all the prosperity churches are busting. Because we still want a form of godliness, but we want the prosperity. We want to hear what feels good to our ears. We don't want the conviction of the whole counsel of God. But we must determine, I got to hurry, we must determine to be a people of the book. God desires truth in the inward parts. And we have to be a people who are desirous of truth. It's good when the Holy Spirit touches a nerve. That's a good thing. It's good when the Holy Spirit stomps on our toes. Or when the Holy Spirit pricks our heart. That's God at work. Don't get mad at the delivery man. So long as he's using the book. Chapter and verse. Now I know preachers can deliver it all wrong. I never want to deliver the Word of God in an offensive manner. I feel like I did that in a couple areas last week, and I just have been beating myself up over it all week. And, and I never want to be offensive on purpose. But even if a preacher does so, if it is truth, then examine your heart. I've, I've seen preachers in this church, back when I was here before, get up, and I believe they delivered the Word of God in an offensive manner. But then I saw people get saved. I can't explain that. But some people, I guess, just need to be slapped sometimes. Amen? <laughs> hmm. Back the man of God who delivers the message of God's Word without compromise. Without watering down the message. Not in a cult-like following. I don't have the time for you to be up all in my business like a cult. Amen? But support the preacher in a way of encouragement to keep preaching the Word of God. If you're one that is saying, prophecy ye not to them which give the truth of God's word, then you've got a heart issue. And really your problem isn't with the messenger, but it's with God's word. Well, let's leave it there for today. We'll pick up, Lord willing, next week. Let's pray.